Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact, but so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvelous. Four, three, two, one. Lift off. We have a lift Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Few Podcast with me, Boo, and the awesome. Sean, Shawnee Sewell. Hey, Sean. Hey, mate. How are we? I'm good, mate. I was just thinking one thing we haven't celebrated yet is our through the roof top 5% of podcasts globally inside of 12 months. And we've only done like 50 episodes. That was, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good result. Uh, I think this is episode 48, maybe 47, 48, I think roughly. That's pretty so cool. It's going really, really well. So clearly the the um, people's stories of their journeys and and things are really like, hitting home and landing with, with the audience, which is awesome to hear. We must have some pretty awesome listeners out there as well. Absolutely. Speaking of legends uh, and champions, I think today we've got like what you'd have to define as one of the biggest champions in like the last 160 years. I mean, we're... We're talking about setting the bar extremely high and stepping into an environment that hasn't seen a lot of success for a long time. And this year is the year to have this conversation because for the first time in a long time, Melbourne won the AFL Grand Final. Melbourne Demons, that's right. And for those of you tuning in from around the world, NFL fans, MLB, NBA, you name it, this is a big deal. Uh, so with no further ado, we have the president of the Melbourne Football Club on the podcast today, Kate Roffey. Kate, thank you so much for joining Sean and I in the few podcasts today. I look absolutely delighted. I'm just, it's such an exciting year for us. It's such an exciting year for me. And what could be better than being with you two on the few? Fantastic. Now, welcome, Kate. Great to have you on board. Now, that was a uh, very rousing uh, introduction there. And yeah, 160 years in the club's history and a couple of firsts, obviously the first premiership this year and only a few months, what's a month, month and a half ago or something now. And um, also the first female president in the club itself. Now, I'm going to, you know, Boo loves it how I just tended to just go straight for the jugular, but I wanted to kind of dive straight in, Kate, and say how difficult was it stepping into that role over 160 years being the first female to take on that role within the club. Did you find resistance? Did you feel you were welcomed with open arms? Like, how did that play out? Yeah, look, it's an interesting process. I've been on the board for eight years, and I think that's a really critical part of this. I mean, it's a, for those who are listening around the world, I mean, you won't even know what Australian football is, but it's a huge, huge sport here. It's a huge machine, and you've got to understand how it works, that every sport is is difference in, in its machinations, but the AFL is so big and the machinations are, are so complicated that I really needed that time as president. I really needed that time on the board and as part of the organisation to actually understand what was required. I've spent a couple of years as vice president and then I was actually asked, so our presidents are elected by the rest of the directors of the board and we're all elected by our membership as directors. So I was asked to step up and take on the president's role by my other directors who, until just last week, were all men. I have just brought another a female onto the board, so there's now two females on the board. But 
it's an industry that historically has been incredibly male-dominated, but it is changing and I know I have the support of, of those men in my club and I don't just mean my, mean my directors, I mean my, my CEO who's a man, our head coach who's, they all support me, not because I'm a female, but because I actually know what I'm doing. I have a, an elite sports background. I have a background in governance. I have a background in big development of multi-million dollar and billion dollar facilities. They're the things that we're looking for, particularly in our president, and, and I fit the bill. I will have to say that when I was asked to step up, I did immediately say, oh, let me think about it. And I did take time to think about it because they are such enormous roles and it's bigger than being a president of a club or a chair of a board because AFL is so important in this country and in particular in Victoria and at Melbourne, we wrote the rules of this game and, and as you say, Sean, we haven't won a premiership for 57 years and we're the oldest professional sporting club in the world. So there was a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation around the club. But, um, yeah, I feel like I'm fully supported, but I also feel like I'm fully skilled and capable to to hold the role. And I think that's really important. You have to feel that you're ready and that you're confident and comfortable to be able to do it. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have been a very good president of any club because I didn't know what I know now. I notice also that a lot of the roles that you have played and are playing at the moment are quite high-level leadership or advisory or in strategic roles. And would that be the same then? So 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have been able to go down that path, but now you've kind of been drawn to that. And what is it that does draw you to those types of roles? I think the strategy thing is something I've always done. So I'm, I'm very good at jigsaw puzzles and pulling things apart and putting them back together. So that's where my natural mindset is. But in terms of saying when you're ready to be a president, I think it's more about understanding the amount of pressure that there are in these roles, the fact that it's not about me. It's not about any one person at this club. We collectively have to do things. We're all links in a chain. And if you start sitting there thinking, oh, this is your opportunity or this is a, you know, my opportunity, then you're not going to do a very good job, I don't think. And I'm mature enough and and sensible enough now to know that it's a huge, I mean, these are voluntary roles. It's a huge job to do and you have to be skilled at it. You have to be capable. You have to be aware that the big target is sitting on my back every time we do something good or bad. Great, you get the the accolades and the congratulations. But when, you, when something goes wrong, the target's on your back. So you have to be aware that not everyone's going to love you 100% of the time. And that's a maturity thing. And and I think you grow and develop with that maturity over time. And sure, um, might I have said yes 10 years ago, I probably would have said it yes quicker than what I do now because I don't know what I do know now, but I certainly wouldn't have been as, as good at executing the role, I don't think, as, as I hopefully will be now. 57 years, Kate. I mean, that's almost like just getting used to losing it or getting used to it and not having winner's DNA. What was the challenge taking over the mantle as president and literally winning in the first year, like clearly something happened. Yeah, and I spoke to um, supporters when I first took over and I also spoke to a group of supporters on Friday and I said, we have to believe, and and you're 100% right, we had almost fallen into a culture of not believing and accepting failure and accepting that so long as you go out and you play okay, that's enough. And eight years ago we really went through a transformational change of saying, no, we we have to change this club from the roots right back up. And so we did everything. We changed our list. We changed our coaching staff. We changed our CEO. We changed our head coach. And we really went back to a process of saying that we are going to be terrible. Uh, I remember my head coach coming in in one of my first board meetings and saying, 
heads up, folks, if we're going to do this properly, we are not going to win a game for the next three seasons. Now, anyone who's out there listening, I know the Cleveland Browns can probably feel very strongly for me. You know, there's a lot of a lot of teams out there that just have been through that thing where they just don't believe and no one believes they ever will. And we most certainly were in that position. But we believed as a internally and as a club that we had put all the pieces in place. The last bit was just getting that culture right and that selflessness. And so many people who've watched the AFL and the way we conducted ourselves as a club have said there's this absolute team first, club first attitude. And that's really the cultural thing that has gelled in the end. It's not about any one of us. It's about everyone knowing their role and playing their role. And, and when you do that and you can execute to a relatively high degree, then you see what happens in the grand final where you have a team that just comes out and absolutely just, you know, not just smashes them, they absolutely crash all through the finals, crash, bang, smash. This team of players just annihilated the opposition in, in games where, you know, they usually fought out 10 points, six points, one point. You know, we're beating them by 50-plus points. It was just quite astonishing, but it's all built on that culture and belief. I think as you say there, it's that you have to go to rebuild the foundation of just like like anything. If you're going to knock a building down, the biggest part to rebuilding the building is digging the hole and building the foundation and then build the new building on top of. And you can't start building on top of it until the foundation's right. And that, to me, cross into any type of business. You know, a sporting team is a business. It has the same sort of moving parts, you know, like you've got your your team members and, and they're employed by the club and your coaching staff and all support staff and admin and all of that. It's a business, the same as any, you know, whether someone's got a, a shop down the road with five people in it or a giant multinational that's got hundreds of thousands of people in it. It's the same same thing and I've seen it, you know, time and time again. Look at even big companies like Apple. They had to basically go back and rebuild their foundation to be able to then get back and be competitive again in the, in the marketplace. So another analogy or that sort of foresight to actually go, you know what, we're going to suck for a period of time. But if we don't do that, we're never going to win anything. We're going to be just on the same the same stuff every single year. It, really, it takes a lot of courage. And how many people cut corners? How many people say, I'll just renovate my house instead of going just not? This happened to me. I'm going to I'll renovate, I'll just add a bit because, you know, it'll be cheaper or whatever. My builder came to me and he said, just knock it down. He said, knock it down, we'll have it back up quicker than you know. And he said, but there's no point. You've got half of it with concrete, new concrete stumps and the other half are old bricks, you know, that are crumbling and whatever and are 80 years old. So we always try to cut the corner because we think, oh, it'll be quicker, might be a bit cheaper or whatever. But in the end, it, you just don't get the same result. And many, many clubs have tried to buy a premiership or buy in big players to win. And it just because in the end, it comes down to culture. We all have players, we, we rank them in AFL from one to seven. Seven being your, your absolute elite, your best, and all your teams never going to be all sevens. You, you're going to have fours, you're going to have fives, you might have some threes. But like everything, you have to maximise the weakest link. Otherwise, you can't paper over those cracks. So it's going back and saying you're a four, but you still play a critical role. And, and seven, you've got to step up and actually, you know, do a little bit more to help you help your players around you who may not have the same natural ability or experience as you do. And it's a, I mean, it is a big decision to actually go back and say start from scratch and rebuild it but it, you know, it's great for me because i look at it now and go we're at the start of our we're at the start of our journey not not the end of the 57 year drought we're actually at the start of what i hope is a 57 year flood of premierships mm. and that's the thing it's that whole thing that people say you know it takes what minimum of 10 years to become an overnight success you guys have gone back to the foundations rebuilt them again 
it looks like all of a sudden demons have come from nowhere. Look at this. They've, you know, they've won the premiership after 57 years. Uh, I think I might've said 160 before I meant 57, but boo, that's more than our lifetime. You know, it's a very, very long period of time to not have that. I know that um, in a couple of years ago, when I was in Sydney, we were going for Cronulla Sharks and that was their first premiership in, I think it was 50 something years as well. 50, And the local community just went ballistic because they'd never seen anything like it for, for so long. And, and what did it mean to the club to get that win after 57 years? How, how important was that for the club? We obviously were unusually in Perth playing because um, all premierships are played or grand finals are played here at the MCG in Melbourne, but because of COVID, we're in Perth. And I was over there with West Coast, who've won recently won premiership, and their, their president of their club came over to me and said, it will change your club if you win. It will absolutely change your club. There's a sense of belief. There's a renewed sense of pride. There's a, a sense of uplift. And for, it was interesting because those overseas probably have heard that Melbourne was the most lockdown city in the world during COVID. We actually spent two years in our houses. And I think the whole thing of Melbourne winning, we carry the Melbourne name, the names that are synonymous with, with our sport, with AFL, the Ron Barassis, the Norm Smiths, Jimmy Steins, Robbie Flowers, Neil Danaher's, they're Melbourne names. And, and so many people wanted Melbourne to be a strong team. They wanted Melbourne to be successful, not just because it was about winning the AFL, but it was like succeeding in the face of all this adversity that the city had been through in in lockdown and there was just it wasn't just melbourne supporters i in fact had bulldog supporters ringing me and saying i'm a bulldog and i know we're playing in the grand final but i really hope melbourne win because it gave such a sense of you can overcome and i think as you said sean you know it is a big decision to go back and rebuild from scratch but if you do it and you just persist with it it isn't a journey overnight it's it's eight years in the making to get here and it's really one of those stories that get turned into a movie because there's so many unbelievable moving parts that in isolation you wouldn't think much of it. But when you put it all together, it's like we're going to be seeing Kate Roffey in the Melbourne Victory movie in about five or six years. Funny, they, there will be a lot of Ted Lasso fans out there, I know, because <laughs> so, someone, in fact, someone else stopped me yesterday and said, uh, not only did I think I looked like Rebecca out of Ted Lasso, that they say, this is the real Ted Lasso story. This is the, the club that's, that people say it's gone from basket case to premiers. What happened? Well, it wasn't an overnight journey. It's been a lot of lot of work from a lot of people, but you can do it. It's true. You just have to have the, the goal, the strategy and persist. Yeah, one of the things that I, because I was born in Melbourne, born and left there, and we lived opposite the Essendon Bombers Stadium. And was just fanatical. I remember it now how fanatical people are about the AFL. So if you're from another country or you don't understand the AFL, it is kind of like European or South American football. It is very much like that. So having that association that Melbourne after being, and I know I've got a lot of clients in Melbourne in my inner circle group, they've suffered so badly in business because of these lockdowns and stuff that to have the Melbourne team actually win it. I think, as you said, it's got a broader meaning to the Melbourne community, broader Melbourne and Victorian community than just, you know, oh, that's my team or it's not my team. You know, as you can see, there's appreciation from other teams too. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's really an extraordinary thing to be part of. I don't really understand what we've done or what it means. Um, it's different when you're the president. Part of the entity, you sort of go, oh, thank goodness, we've done that. Now what's next? Oh, we've got the AFLW and, and other things. So you keep moving. I think probably six months after I finish as president of my club, I'll go, oh, wow, that's what we did. But I have to say, as we're coming out of lockdown and being able to go out and about more, I had to come here um, at my house, you know, for a visit. 
she stayed with me for a while and people just kept traipsing through the house, you know, from 11am till 1am just so they could have photos and touch the cup and, and sit around and talk about it. It means that much to people. The grown men will cry when one of our former club captains, Todd Barney, at lunch on Friday, just talking about it again, his son plays for the team now and is a premiership player. Um, as Todd started crying, just, you know, sitting at the front of the room doing a Q&A. That's how much it actually means to to people. It's just the most extraordinary thing. It's the most extraordinary thing to be part of, but we're, we're on a journey. We haven't finished yet, so there's still a lot of work. It's warming up. Absolutely. <laughs> But, Kate, this is obviously a super purposeful thing to have achieved, right? Like this is almost once-in-a-lifetime stuff. Uh, and one of the things that are recurring in the few that come onto the show is they live purposeful existences. So before this, what were you doing? Like what was Kate's purpose in life? I mean, you're, you're, you're very accomplished, but somewhere in there you are at university and had to get your first job. And what was it about you that, enabled you to lift into some of these really important roles, culminating in the first female president in 160 years, first premiership in 57 years. What shaped that journey? I don't really know. I've just lived lived my life. But I think one of the things that I always, um, I get bored easily, so I always want to be doing something new, something different, something that hasn't been done before. But I think the biggest thing for me is I grew up on a farm I ride horses. Uh, my dad's a, a builder, so I make furniture now, fine handmade furniture in my spare time. And I would be quite happy if I could do that, live on my farm and ride horses all day and, and make furniture and, and play the guitar. And I wouldn't have to be president of the football club. And I think that's one of the things is I, I love doing it. And they, these roles are so important and they're challenging and they're challenging for me mentally and they stimulate me, but they don't define me as a person, I'm not defined by the fact that I'm the president of the Melbourne Football Club. I'm very proud to be. And I think when you're not out there looking to say, oh, that's that's what I have to be because that's the big goal, that's what's going to determine my success, then all of a sudden these things become really fascinating, interesting things and and your journeys on your, your path, they're all like overnight stops at cafes in your journey of life and each one's different and each one's, you know, I've had a great meal there and that was a fantastic stop and something really interesting there. There's always something else to go on and do and like I say, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing something else and, you know, I might not be talking on a globally significant podcast like The Few, but I'd still be doing something interesting and and useful and whatever it is. And so I think that's part of the thing is I just sort of, I, I am the right person, right time, right place. And if I see those opportunities, I say yes. And I, I think that's probably the thing. Some weird doors have opened for me, but when I've looked at them, I've just said I've no idea why it's saying walk through that door, but my gut says walk through it. So off you go and, and walk through it. And to be honest, six months either way, you could end up not in this position. You could end up in a completely different sphere of life, a completely different situation. So it just is as it is. I, I don't know why, but... You know, I just go along with it. I think from the, from the outside looking in, people call it luck. But from the inside looking out, it's an opportunity that mm, you proactively absolutely. made a decision to make a life change to do. And, oh, by the way, take the pressure of all the losing prior yeah, to winning absolutely. as well. Yeah, and it's not luck because you do, like I said, you've got to do the things to put yourself in a position where you've got the skill set and the capabilities to be president of a football club. It's not a, not an easy job. You have to 
what it to be a fighter pilot. You've got to do your training and you don't just jump in and go, ooh, this will be fun. So you put yourself in a position through your experiences and your lived experiences as well as your working life, you put yourselves in positions to be asked to do these things or to be capable and confident enough to do them. You, you know, I always say to young people who, who say, oh, we're mentoring, I haven't got the perfect job. I say, I haven't got the perfect job and I'm 50. So that takes time to come across. Everyone's on a race to get somewhere. But like I say, like I said, you've got to develop the skills and the wisdom and the knowledge to be good at doing these things. When you take them on too young, and I was way too young when I took on, you know, executive roles, you don't know what you need to know to actually be a good leader, good CEO. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, that's the thing. My statement is that now I'm old enough to know that I don't know it all, which is obviously wasn't the case for a while there when my ego was was steering the ship. But again, one of the the common traits in in everyone that we bring on the few is the the thing about saying yes and then figuring it out later, but also using your your gut, using your instinct and your intuition or whatever you want to call it, that thing that says my head's going. Oh, I'm not sure, but if your gut's going, you know what? open that door, you know, try that, give it a go. Because often it's those ones where you, you, so what I find is ones you surrender to that are going to give you the best outcome and often surprise you as you get to that destination you wanted, but the path is very, very different to what you anticipated. And I wanted to ask you a question about legacy, you know, like a lot of the times in these conversations, again, is there's, there's purpose. There's also the purpose has, I suppose, a longer term impact or consequence, which we call it legacy in this sense. How important is legacy to you? What do you want to be known for once you're when you're not here anymore? What do you want to leave behind? I get asked this a lot. I find it a bit of a strange question uh, because it's not what I think. Oh, I've got to be. I have to be remembered for something or doing something. I've got to, things we're talking about the football club. There are things that we have to get done. We've got a facility to get built and funded, so that's a critical thing. And hopefully, when I finish, that will, if not be fully built, it will be yeah under construction. So that's that's my job. Is it the achievement, the legacy? No, it's the job that I've got to do and I'll walk away and, and hopefully that'll be done. But it, it doesn't need my name name on the front of it or, you know, it doesn't need to be my legacy. It's just, That's what I'm here to do for at this point in time and whoever comes after me will have another job that they've got to do. So I think, you know, like I say, we're all links in the chain and it's not about my legacy. I've, this is why I've been asked to do this job now and so that's what I've got to do. Okay, what about your legacy for women or people without the confidence to to be what they want to be? I find if I'm talking to, to kids that want to be fighter pilots, for example, one of the things they always say is, oh, I'm not good enough. I'll never be able to do that. It looks like it's too hard. What, what about your legacy in terms of mentoring? Oh, absolutely. And look, again, I sort of think of that as it's part of the, I mean, I'm given an enormous opportunity to have a platform to help others. People say, you know, what's the best thing about having these sorts of roles is the fact that you can be a role model, you can make a difference. And I use this platform enormously to particularly talk about equity and gender issues and socioeconomic status and all sorts of groups that are either disenfranchised or marginalised. These are great opportunities to, to bring that awareness and to be better. I mean, we just have to be better in these spaces across the board. So I gain, but I see that as a part of this job and I see it as a great opportunity and I hope that I get a lot of, you know, like you, I get a lot of young people come on, and particularly young women and dads come up and say, oh, my daughter, you know, she have a photo or whatever. She wants to be like you. And I said, no, don't do more than me because I'm I'm benefiting from the, you know, the fabulous work that so many women who had much harder time than I did. I'm benefiting from the, the path that they forged because I didn't have to go back to scratch and, and cut through the undergrowth that they've cut through. So I'm doing my bit now. So I say to the people who are coming after me, do more. 
you can do more. Than, I'll get us so far, but you can do more. And that's a really, you know, again, it's a thing of I'm a living part of this link. And one day I won't be anymore, but there'll be others who carry on the work and continue to be links in the chain. And I always sort of think legacy is a definitive thing that, that it ends. And as long as I'm alive, I hope that I'll always be some link in the chain helping in some way to drag it up the hill. As I get a bit older, I'm not going to be as effective at dragging it up the hill, obviously. But, you know, they're things that I, I just think we're all living parts of this mechanism that we've got to keep giving while we can and keep being a part of this this chain and this motion of dragging things to a better place. And I, and I think that's fantastic. And just FYI, my daughter had played her very first game of AFL yesterday and for her, her first year of high school, she's only 12, like just to see the passion that she has. And funnily, because I talked to her about the stories of the people I speak to on the few, and through those stories, I know that she's comfortable exploring that. And at her school, it's only a small group of girls. Most of the girls play netball, basketball. But to see her do that and to have the opportunities to do that, but most importantly, love it and really get into it is like it's fantastic you're right that would have never that would have not happened no absolutely and look there's people there's names like debbie lee and and daisy pierce yeah they're the names that are synonymous with this movement to bring women into football and to to give courage and i look at them and go yeah they're the real people who are the pioneers and have really left a legacy and they've they've done it hard to to get there but to see yeah, I know for those people, for Daisy and Karen Paxton, who are still playing now with Melbourne, for example, the joy of seeing someone who's a 12-year-old girl be able to kick their football for the first time or a dad like you who says, oh, you know, I'm so overjoyed that my child, male or female, can do whatever sport they want and know that when they play that sport, you're not going to be faced with this horrible, horrible tirade of negativity around the fact that you're a female playing the men's sport. You know, that we need, as I say, we need to be a lot better in this space. It's it's not defined by gender. It's it's a sport that can be played by anyone. I always talk about AFL men's and our AFL women's because we are one club and we have two teams, a men's team and a women's team, and they're both equally important to me. And I think that's really important that young women and young people and whatever sort of role model you are, and there's plenty of different ones out there, encourage others. And not necessarily because there's only one president of the football club at a time. So not everyone's going to get to be to it. But the fabulous author, Bryce Courtney, said to me once when he was doing an athlete's assembly at the Institute of Sport, and I was chatting to him afterwards, and he said, what do you want to do? And I can't even remember what it was. It was probably be president of the Olympic Committee or something. And all he said to me was, you know what, someone has to be it. It might as well be you. And, you know, it turns out it's not me doing that, but I'm doing something else because I always remember someone has to step up and be president of their club. So if they're asking me, why shouldn't it? be me so we need to give everyone more courage and confidence to have a go in whatever space they can fit because like i said not everyone can do the same thing i love that reference you know that that if it's got to be someone why not be you and and i do see a lot in working very very closely with business owners in what i do is a lot of that belief around the fact that they're actually not not worthy like oh yeah but it can't be me and that's you know this what is childhood stuff or be bullied at school or whatever the case was, one of those situations where, which I had to overcome a lot of that stuff myself, is it is difficult to actually imagine that. But I think when I finally went, you know what? Actually, why not me? Why couldn't I? Why couldn't that person be me, that person on stage or that person doing those keynotes or that person doing a podcast? Why couldn't that be me? Am I uncomfortable doing it to start with when I first go out there and do it? Absolutely. 
But did it kill me? No, it didn't. It actually went, oh, look, I can actually do it, you know, and we've got podcasts, we've got amazing guests coming on or just did a tour in the NT for uh, for a bunch of keynotes. And this stuff, you, you've got to believe that it can be you. That's that person, I feel, you know, I mean, and I mean, obviously it comes up in sport as well. I mean, obviously in elite level sport, that'd be something that's quite prolific amongst people with potentially big egos or lots of pressure on them to perform. It, it's an interesting one, and I just as, as you just hit the nail on the head, there's the, the big ego thing, and I go back to this thing of you have to be able to do it, and that's the thing. There's a learning process and everything else, but I, I always say that people say, oh, should I apply for this job? And I say, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing for certain. If you don't apply for it, you will not get it. So if you do apply for it, you may not get it. you don't apply for it, you will not get it. But I always say it's not your decision. Okay, someone else gets to pick who they give the job to, all you can do is apply. And this is the thing that always others pick me to be president. Others pick us to do all sorts of things. It's very rare that you get to go out and just make your own way. Even if you're a public speaker, others need to want to listen to you. Why am I in the few? Because you think I've got something interesting to say. Now, your audience will determine that. Yeah, my members will determine if I'm a good president of the football club. So I think that thing is no matter what you're doing, when I go to the someone has to be it, it might as well be me, but I need to look really carefully at myself and reflect and say, should it be me? And not because I'm scared and not because I don't have the confidence to do it, but do I actually really have the skill set and the wisdom and the capability and the fortitude to do this? Or do I just want to do it because it's a it's a big shiny name up on the door and my ego says that'd be really cool to do it. So I, there's this thing of actually sitting there and reflecting and saying, do I actually think I could do the job and am I doing it for the right reasons? And I think that's one, as we talk about ego, often gets forgotten. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you're almost destined to not do it very well, I think. And magic doesn't happen, right? You've still got to show up. Absolutely. Do all the things and jump through the hoops to be that person. But I think the challenge is when people say, it's never going to be me, that journey never starts. As you said, they never applied. But That's right. You can't live, you can't live my life. You know, I always people say that the most, someone asks me, what's the most astonishing piece of feedback you've ever had? And I said, when people come up to me, I say it all the time, they say, you're so authentic, you're so genuine when you speak. And I'm like, well, what's everyone else talking about if they're not talking about their own experiences and what they think and feel about that? That's all I can speak about. But nobody else can go on the journey that I've been on because no one else is the same as me. So you've got to make your own journey. You've got to make your own success. You've got to make your own path but you've got to step out of your comfort zone and comfort zone and start on it because otherwise you're never going to go anywhere and there's people who are happy in their, their little comfortable box and that's fine too because if we're all leaders we're not going to make it out the fire exit are we because we'll get crushed in the doorway trying to get there first so we have to have a spread of, of capabilities and a spread of roles as well but everyone fits in their place you just have to be confident enough and willing to step out of your comfort zone and see where you actually fit. I think it's it's they've said there's people that some people are happy to stay in the, the box of comfort zone and just be there. It's those people where there's discomfort about being in the box. You've got to understand you just need that little bit of extra discomfort to actually take the step out of it. And then once you do, you'll realize that it wasn't as hard as what you thought it was. And even if it is, it's so much more rewarding than staying in your box going, I don't want to be in this box anymore and feeling trapped or dissatisfied or, or not feeling successful in your life. And I don't mean success attached to financial or stuff. I'm talking feeling like a successful human being within yourself. And, and I think that's something that's really important. And a lot of people don't identify with themselves. And, and 
how do you define your level of success in your terms? How do you define that? Just as you said, I thought that's a really interesting point because my definition of success is not the same as anyone else's. I, I would consider myself to be a very successful person if I ran, for example, my farm and was able to look after um, horses that came from the RSPCA and, and yeah, I rode them all day and nobody knew who I was, but I was doing something like that. So our definitions of success are always different, but we always we see the people that have high profiles and, and they have those for a reason, but we, we attach success to them and then mistakenly we attach success to the role they hold. And that's what I'm saying. It's not about the name president. It's not about the name CEO. It's about the way you conduct yourself when you're in that role because there's plenty of poor CEOs out there. There's plenty of poor people in those roles. Getting the title doesn't make you good at what you do. Being good at what you do actually makes you a good person to hold that position and we constantly forget about that. We all of a sudden think, oh, I've been elevated into this position now and all of a sudden I've become a much better person and I know all this stuff and my, the world's my oyster and everything goes right. And it's not because 90% of my time I spend as president trying to fix things up. You know, it doesn't just all go smoothly. I think when you are in a role that's high profile but it's not a big deal, you've earned it. It's, it's your last small win. I think when you're in a role and you don't deserve it, that's when you're like, wow, look at me. And, and, and that's, which is yeah, what I say all the time. That's, that's my life. But, uh, <laughs> Kate, before, before we sort of start to look at uh, wrapping it up, I want to ask you something. My entire life, I've never been somebody that's ever thought about gender in terms of whether a man or a woman should have a job based on what the gender is. It's just I've always genuinely believed no matter who you are, you do the job, where you go now. Now, obviously, that's not how the world thinks. So when I ask you this question, I'm asking it through the lens of being deliberately ignorant. With the woke world that we're going through, with all of these changes and upheaval and everyone losing their jobs because, you know, more women in the workplace, what's your perspective? Like what with the way that the world is becoming woke, are we doing it in a way that's inclusive and good for everyone or do you have a sense that we're creating sort of animosity and tension and more extreme views about everything? It's a great question and one I, I ponder a lot. I think, again, I didn't really go through the I can't do it because I'm a female, but I have. I have sat there and tried to be intimidated and bullied because I am a female uh, sitting around a board table or around an executive table. And it, it takes a lot of fortitude to actually, and I've, I've said this, I've done my misogyny speech, I've talked to Julia Gillard and I said I've had to do my misogyny speech, I think every female in a leadership role is going to have to do it at some point in time where you just have had enough and you say, you know, no one elected you, gone in this meeting and we all have a right to, to speak. I think it's getting better, it's a process of change and I think one of those things is about education and for example, I went to a lunch yesterday and I was seeing extra an old gen older gentleman and he said, I'm one of those older gentlemen, so I hope you don't mind if I pull your seat out while you sit down. I said, no, I don't have a problem with it, but thank you for asking because someone else might. And so he, for him it's an education thing about it's not expected and some, some people wouldn't like it, but ask and then, you know, it's through an education process. I tried to explain to him why it doesn't matter to me. I think it's polite and... Others might feel offended by it. So I think in this space, and in particular, I, I work with a lot of men who are in that older 
generation and don't they don't understand why now it's become an issue to hold the door open or to offer to carry your bag and for some people it is and and some people it isn't so there's an education process to go through and I I always sit on the the side of saying firstly don't assume that it's done in a belittling way firstly I assume you don't know how I feel about it or you don't know what to do so I'll, I'll have a chat and let's see if we can understand why we need to change or why we need to think differently and if that doesn't work then yet yeah, it's on with the misogyny speech but there's ways to do it and it's a process of change and I think it's a process of, of education and understanding. I think if we're talking about the gender thing I think our men who are coming through now our younger men are a lot better um, because women are a lot better at actually saying that's not acceptable but remember once we get through the gender section of it then we've got to work on everything else the um, less able people we've got to work on our total acceptance and in the integration there socioeconomic status we've got to start working on this so while gender i think is going along reasonably well there are a lot of other marginalized groups and a lot of other areas that we need to start turning the same lens on to i think and saying we need to be better in all these spaces treat the person as the person that they are, not what they look like, not where they come from, not what gender they are, not their racial background. You know, let's just get a better open mind at actually accepting people for who they are and what they stand for. And some of those people I won't like, some of those people you won't like, that's just because we're different, but it's not because of their gender. It's not because of where they came from. It's not because of where they grew up. It's because we just don't get on as people. It's usually their values misalignment that uh, means that we don't quite mesh with somebody and found the same thing as you, Boo. I've never, I've never even, never even crossed my mind. It's, it's about capability. It's about values alignment and it's about does that person add value, bring value and, and show up in the right way in the environment. And no matter what their creed, race, you know, what sex they are, it doesn't matter as far as I've seen. And, and I think it is shifting a lot. I mean, in business now for over 30 years myself, and I've definitely seen a, a big shift in not only the external influence on women to be able to feel empowered, but just seeing women actually take that step forward and going, you know what, I'm going to step in here like I am an equal. And if there are some people that don't like that, well, that's just too bad. Absolutely. And you always just, you've got to crack through that and go, you know, okay, you don't like me, you've got the small man syndrome or whatever, you just push on through it and you go, too bad, I'm here and I'm going to do the best job that I can. Without a doubt, there's there's still that out there, but it's getting better and like we've got men like you who are coming through and don't see that and gradually that group will grow and it doesn't become an issue. But like I said, once we get there, then we've got to move on to the next, tackle the next set of blinkers that we've got on. So it's it's going to be a never-ending piece of work, I think. But hopefully role models are so important, no matter what you do, and hopefully... you know, if I can leave a legacy and at some point in time someone comes up to me and says, I'm doing whatever it is because I saw you speak on the few podcasts and it really resonated with me, then I've done my job, I've left my legacy and, you know, I can go on my merry way to wherever we go next. I'm happy that someone else has, you know, achieved their dream because of something you said. That's generally what happens to people that come on the few, so you better be ready for that, Kate. <laughs> that's okay. Look, it's, that's, it's a huge honour and it's a huge privilege to have that as part of these roles, being able to actually encourage and, you know, inspire and motivate others. There's, you know, like I said, if I can walk away and know that there's people out there that have achieved more because of something that I've said or, or done or whatever else it is, then that's enough for me. 
think we've ever had that much uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, pokes at ourselves with the episode. But but it is right though. It's, it, to me, it's just that leadership piece. It doesn't matter what role you're in. You could be you know leading a kids' footy team, or you could be teacher leading a classroom. You could be a, a small business owner leading a business, or you could be you know leading a you know a large organization that that's that's in the public eye and in the end it, it's it's all leadership it's all about leadership how do you define yourself as a leader how do you believe you show up as a leader and and inspire and communicate to other people i think one of those things that you just said there is anytime i show up i am that person that others are looking at and i think that's one of those things i always say i have bad days where i don't want to go out or I've got a headache, I feel sick, whatever it is. But I always, I know because I walk around the streets, I was in Beechworth, which is regional Victoria, just this last weekend, and I was in the coffee shop and the guy who owns it said, you're Kate from ABC and you're the president of the football club. I'm a Melbourne fan. Can I have a photo with you? Absolutely. Delighted to. If I don't want to do that, don't go outside because it's yeah, that's the, the story of his year. He's just, you know, he's just had a photo with the president of the Melbourne football club, his team. That's, you know, they see him as, as playing an important role in winning this thing. So I always think one of those leadership things is you're a leader wherever you go, whenever you go there. And if you don't want to be a leader through, I mean, it's don't go outside. Stay at home with your family, go to the farm and ride the horses and do that sort of thing. So I think, again, it's a, it's a mantle that you carry very proudly and you earn and people respected and they can be inspired and motivated by it, but you carry it all the time. Wherever you go, you carry it all the time and you're always mindful of the fact that the way I interact with you is going to make or break your week, your day, your year. And you have got the the power to cause a lot of damage or a lot of hurt in this role by the way that you treat people. So if you are in these roles, and it is whether you're a coach of the under-10s team or the president of the Melbourne Football Club, or the Prime Minister of Australia, the way you treat someone makes or breaks their day. So be really careful about how you treat everybody because they're watching and you can bet your bottom dollar that if it's not a very positive treatment of them, that'll circulate around the traps a lot quicker than, than a positive treatment. But you carry these roles, you've got to respect them and you have to always do the right thing. Absolutely. Showing up is a choice. Absolutely. How you show up is a choice. And what what I've noticed with a lot of you know lot of the strong leadership you know people friends and people that I you know have in my network and stuff like that is that and I, to me myself you know there's a high number of I think really strong leaders that are actually quite introverted so we'll go and play with the horses or I'll you know be quite a homebody at a time but when I need to step out and show up I'll show up and not perfectly 100% of the time every time but I'm close most of the time and I do it really well and sometimes I come back and go probably could have done a little bit better in that situation and you know, what was going on there. And it's always that continuous learning. And as you say, to me, leadership is the skin that you wear. It's not an act. You don't show, I'm going to put my leadership hat on and come in and dictate terms to everybody. This is a, and it's a journey to get there. It's not something you can wake up one morning, right, I'm going to be this leader. And it's so important to, to be patient with ourselves, but also to set who do we actually aspire to be? That's a process I run with, with my clients is about defining that. Who do you aspire to be? And about seven years ago, I think I've said it on a couple of podcasts before, I set up one that said my definition of leadership is humble, authentic, and vulnerable. Those three words. Had I told myself that 20 years ago, I would have laughed at myself at thinking that they were really fluffy and soft. But for me, I set that, and then a few years later, I got a massive indicator of that in leaving a, a, a place and had 
200 comments on it and most of them had at least one of those words, you know, humble, authentic environment. I was like, shit, I'm actually showing up as this person that I aspired to be. I'm not pretending or putting on an act. And so it's so important. And you said it before about just your authenticity. This is just you. It, it is the skin you wear. I mean, I always, wherever I speak or whenever I have an engagement, I always learn something and I put it in my little book and that's going in my book now. Leadership is the skin you wear and you can't take it off. If you need to take it off, I go away to the farm. I go away to my workshop where no one sees me and I can, you know, kick and scream and swear if I drop something on my foot or if I fall off a horse or whatever because, you know, that's your safe space where you can do it and that's a really important thing is you, leadership is your skin and wherever you, wherever anyone can see you, then you've got to wear that skin. You've got to wear it proudly and appropriately and authentically and if you're not, you get caught out. If you have to put your skin on and pretend to be something you're not, you're bound to get caught out fairly quickly. Yeah, it's like wearing somebody else's skin, isn't it? And clearly in your journey, you've had a lot of different, as you said, uh, coffee shop stops along the way and all the rest of it. If you were to go back and talk to a younger version of yourself and impart a little bit of you know knowledge, the wisdom that you've learned in your journey, what would you go back and say to a, a younger version of Kate? Slow down. You know, every everyone's on a race. So I was like every young person that's, you know, got some capability and aspiration. I was on a race to the, the CEO chair. And I got there fairly young and I went, oh, shit, this isn't the best chair in the house really, is it? So, again, I was too young and I, I look back now and I go, yeah, I was too young to do that because it, it wasn't about understanding what it meant to be a CEO. It was, again, about the concept of oh, I've finally made it. I, I'm successful because I've made it to that chair. And, you know, again, I think that... You, you can't go back to the low-stress the low jobs. That's done. Yeah, exactly. And you race there. Everyone that talks is, oh, you know, I haven't done this and that. I'm like, you're 25. You're not going to get there quickly. I mean, I'm relatively young to, to be where I'm at. You're relatively young to be where you, you're at. But I look at it and I go, I've still got, at 50, I've still got 25 or 30 years left to work or do things. I mean, it's nearly half my life. So stop racing, enjoy what you're doing because so many of those things I forgot to actually stop and actually enjoy the success or actually acknowledge what I've done. And, you know, I've spent nearly four years backpacking around the world teaching horse riding and driving dog sleds in in the lap part of Sweden and getting taken off trains at gunpoint in the Ukraine. And they were the best years of my life because they taught me so much. They made me so much a better person. And everybody before I went said, you'll lose your career. You'll fall behind everyone. You know, you'll fall out of the system. People will forget you. I was like, no, you know, well, so be it. But it didn't seem to impact me. All it did was make me a much better much better person because I actually went away and looked at myself and I was by myself and then travelling around the world by myself with a backpack in these places. That this is before internet and all sorts of things. I mean, it was you just learn to be so self-reliant and so resilient, but you reflect. And, you know, I, was, I would never, I wouldn't give up those years of travelling for anything because when people say what made you who you are, those four years have probably had more of an impact than any others in making me understand that, there's so many different things you can do in life and all of them are exciting. And while I'm doing the present of the football club, I'm missing other stuff. You know, I'm not being taken off trains at gunpoint in the Ukraine, which was exciting. Probably don't need to go through that again. <laughs> but, yeah, so there's all sorts of things. For the current generation, them trying to understand the concept of, I used to travel before the internet. Yeah. would be like, what do you mean? Yeah. I did. I, seriously, I had a one-way ticket to China and it was a paper ticket. You know, and my poor parents, I look back now and think, 
They didn't hear, hear from me for weeks. I'm in Mongolia and Russia. and I remember using traveler's checks wherever you went. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we didn't have credit cards. I mean, it was just extraordinary, but it's so life-shaping. I mean, it's, it's just such a different thing to do. And had I still just been travelling around the world now doing that, I'd think what a great life. It is. So success comes in so many different forms and everyone's successful in their own way, whether it's bringing up a great family or bringing up the next set of children that are going to go on and be presidents of their football clubs and things. We're all different and we all do amazing things, really. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organisation for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's awesome, Kate. That's a pretty powerful way to finish off. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. It's an amazing story and I I feel as we're winding up, more questions popping into my head and and, and wanting to have this precious time to, to learn more. So thanks so much, Kate, for being generous. Yeah, you nailed it in terms of people saying you're authentic, that authenticity came through today. I really had a, a lovely time chatting. Likewise. Thank you, Kate. No, it's been a, a pleasure. And to everyone out there, go well. Achieve your dreams. Someone has to be it. It might as well be you. You heard here. You want advice or a mentor, just call Kate. <laughs> Thanks, Boo. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kate. Cheers. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.